Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. My Bible is open up to Mark, the ninth chapter. Mark chapter 9, that is where we're going to be for the majority of our time together. We will make a passing reference or two along the way to some other places, but we'll mostly just be working together out of this text in Mark chapter 9 for the next few minutes. As you're turning there, I will take just a hot minute to just say how great it is to see everybody this morning. What a tremendous encouragement it is to see you all, to have visitors and guests among us. We have folks that are visiting with us from other parts of the state and folks even from out of state. And We're glad that you've come to be here today to worship God on this first day of the week. Thank you to our members as well. We sometimes just don't say that enough, but I'm glad for the presence of, of each and every one today. Today is the unofficial start of VBS week here at Lakeside where for the next several days we will have focused uh, teaching and learning and singing and praying, uh, not just for the benefit of our kiddos, but for the benefit of people of all ages who have interest in spiritual things. And as has been the case for the past five years, today will mark six straight years running, my task this morning is to get the ball rolling, to kind of get our appetites wetted just a little bit for the things that are going to be taking place and talked about in this building for the next four days. And ever since our theme was decided on uh, seven, eight, nine months ago, I, I knew exactly what I wanted to preach on on the Sunday before VBS. Which means that for the last seven, eight, nine months, I've had lots of time to think about and to pray about and to study about the remarkable events that are recorded for us in Mark the ninth chapter. Read with me, if you will, in verse number 2. In Mark 9 and in verse 2... The Bible says that after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. Let's go climb a mountain. Anybody interested in climbing a mountain? I'd like to climb a mountain sometime. I've climbed some small hills and some cliffs, but don't necessarily know that I've climbed anything that would really be considered a mountain before. But I'd like to do that. In fact, I'd like for several of us, all of us, to go and do that together. Now, obviously, we're not going to do that today. Look at what I'm wearing. This is not appropriate garb for mountain climbing. But I would like for us to make some plans to go and climb a mountain. Somebody says, okay, well, what mountain are we going to climb? There's lots of mountains to choose from. Where exactly are we going to go? Well, there are lots of options. We could go to the other side of the globe. And we could climb Mount Everest, arguably the most famous mountain in the entire world. Thousands of people attempt to climb the treacherous slopes of Mount Everest every single year, and some do successfully. Or if we maybe wanted to stay kind of stateside and stay closer to home a little bit, maybe we could go climb Mount McKinley. Maybe we could try to tackle the Denali, the highest mountain peak in all of North America. That would be a pretty wonderful sight, to get to the top there and to look out and to gaze upon the Alaskan terrain. That would be pretty neat. Or maybe we could travel a little bit further and we could go to Africa. We could climb to the top of Mount Kilimanjaro, which is actually just a dormant volcano. Man, I'd like to have that on my resume, that I climbed a volcano. And maybe when we get to the top there, we'll see some of the amazing African wildlife while we're there. Lots of great mountains to choose from and lots of amazing things that we could see when we get to the top of those mountains. But what if, what if we could travel back in time and we could climb one of those famous mountains of the Bible? There's lots of famous mountains in the Bible. You know that? 
That'd be pretty neat, wouldn't it, to climb a Bible mountain? Because not only would the geography be amazing, but being able to witness some of the events that took place on those mountains, that would be even more impressive. I mean, come on, who wouldn't want to go to Mount Sinai and be there on Mount Sinai and hang out with Moses and the Israelites as God delivers in the thunder and the smoke, He delivers His law, the Ten Commandments to His people? That, that would truly be awesome. Or what about standing on Mount Carmel? These are supposed to be modern day pictures of where those locations seem to be. What about going to Mount Carmel and getting to hang around Elijah for a little bit? And get to witness how God helps him to be victorious over those 450 prophets of Baal. That would be awesome. Or how awesome would it be to climb the slopes of Mount, the Mount of Olives and to be there in the presence of Jesus the Christ as he commissions his apostles to go into all the world and as he then ascends into the heavens in all of his glory. I'd like to climb those mountains, wouldn't you? Well, here's the good news. You're going to get the opportunity to do just that in all three of those cases. Because all three of those mountains will serve as the basis for our studies this week during VBS as we consider the great events and the people of these stories that are recorded for us in such vivid detail in the pages of Scripture. On Monday night, we will go with Moses to the top of Mount Sinai. On Tuesday night, we will stand with Elijah on Mount Carmel. And then on Wednesday, we will marvel at Jesus there on the Mount of Olives. I'm looking forward to each and every one of those, and I hope that you are as well. But what if we could actually go climb a mountain where Moses and Elijah and Jesus are all there together at the exact same time? Where simultaneously all three of these great heroes of the Bible are there on a single mountain together and we could spend some time with them and learn some things by being in their presence. Well, this morning, we are in luck. Because in Mark the ninth chapter, we're going to kind of pony up next to Peter and James and John as we climb to the top of Mount Hermon, which is believed to be the location and the site of the place that we better know as the Mount of Transfiguration. Read it with me again in Mark chapter 9 and in verse 2. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one else on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, listen to Him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This morning, we're going to go to this mountain. And I think this is one of the most amazing... If I had a time machine, and I'd go back and witness some event in Bible history, this is definitely, it's in my top five at least, of the things that I would like to see. 
And we're going to go there through the eye of faith. And we're going to try to catch a glimpse of what Peter and James and John got to see with their eyes, this very limited audience. We're going to see if we can bear witness to some of those same things. In fact, we do have one benefit that Peter, James, and John do not have, and that is we have the benefit of hindsight. And so maybe we're going to be able to see some things that those three fellows didn't entirely get in the moment, but three things that we absolutely must get today concerning Jesus. Let me share with you those three things that if we are going to climb this mountain and if we're going to get a view from the top, these are the three things that we absolutely must see about Jesus. And that all begins by going to the Mount of Transfiguration and seeing the glory of Jesus. If you'll just back up in the text to verse 1, look how Mark 9 begins. This is actually a continuation of some discussions that Jesus has been having with the apostles. And He's been talking with them about the kingdom of God. Mark 9 verse 1, Some of you standing here will not taste death until you have seen the kingdom of God come with power. Jesus wanted His apostles to know some things about the coming kingdom. And of course, the implication of talking about a kingdom is that there's going to have to be a king. A king who will reign over this kingdom. And that, of course, is going to be who? That, of course, is going to be Jesus. However, trying to convey the kingship of Jesus to these apostles, I think was going to be a little bit of a tall order. Because think about it. For the past two, two and a half, three years, these apostles are with Jesus all the time. And as a result, they're... Well, they're kind of used to Him. They're comfortable with Him. In many respects, He's just like them. Think about it. Put yourself in the shoes of Peter, James, and John or any of the other apostles. Day after day after day, you are with Jesus who gets hungry. Just like you get hungry. You are with Jesus who He has to wash His hands. And He has to take a bath just like you have to do those things. You're with Jesus who gets tired and has to take naps from time to time. You're with Jesus who talks with you in your normal, everyday language. You're with Jesus who knows what it's like to work and to sweat and to do those kinds of things. Day after day after day of that sort of thing, it can start to feel like Jesus is pretty much like you. And while you might consider Him to be the best of you, it can be easy to lose sight of the fact that He is God. That He is God In the flesh. And while that's great and wonderful to think about how Jesus is my friend and He's so close to me and we're so similar in many ways, these apostles need to remember this is Emmanuel, God with us. And very soon He is to be exalted as the Lord of lords and the King of kings as we sang a few moments ago. And so in order to help His apostles not to become too familiar or too comfortable with the King, Jesus is presented to them on this mountain in a manner that would impress upon them His glory and His splendor and His magnificence that is fitting of a King. Notice what's said there in verse 2. That Jesus was transfigured. The Greek word there is the word metamorphosis. And of course, if you passed your you know elementary and high school age science classes, then you know a little bit about metamorphosis. And you think about that caterpillar changing its form entirely to become a butterfly. Well, Jesus isn't changing from a caterpillar to a butterfly, 
But there is a dramatic transformation that's taking place here. That something about Jesus' appearance, His physical appearance, it was changed in that moment. It was changed from what the disciples may have viewed as being very regular and very ordinary to in this moment being something extraordinary. Namely, verse 3 says that His clothes became radiant. That term is actually used elsewhere in the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it is used to describe the dazzling light of the stars. Think about that. Jesus is literally shining like the stars. Exceedingly white, Mark says. Whiter than any launderer on earth could bleach them. One translation says that He was glistening. You can add to this what Luke's account says. That the appearance of His face was altered, changed in some way. Matthew's account says that His face shone like the sun. This is not light shining from heaven on Him. No, 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 no. This is light emanating from Him. Radiating from Jesus. In this moment, Jesus is a blaze of celestial glory. And the disciples, in this moment, They are getting just a glimpse of who Jesus really is. That the glory that embodies His inner person, His soul and His spirit, it's now making its way out. And I don't think the disciples were able to bear all of it, but they're getting a small sliver of His glorious divinity being exposed to them in this moment. And I'll say again, I think the disciples probably needed to see that. You know, when they first met Jesus, I'm pretty sure all the apostles thought, man, this guy is so impressive. Just impressed with his character, the way he carries himself, impressed with his personality, impressed with his teaching and the things that he did, and they were in awe of him. But because he looks like a man, and he has to deal with all of the problems and all the difficulties and all the struggles that all the rest of us have to go with, with being a human being, After a while, what's going to happen is, is you're just going to kind of grow accustomed to him a little bit. I mean, come on. He's Jesus. We've been hanging out with this guy for the last few years now. We see him day after day after day after day. And you know what? That can happen to us. It can. We come to church week after week after week after week. We sing the songs about Jesus. We read the passages about Jesus. We take the Lord's Supper in remembrance of Jesus. We talk about and we think about Jesus so often that it kind of loses its luster sometimes. And of course, if Jesus is also influencing our daily decisions, not just what we're doing on Sunday, but if He's influencing our daily decisions as He should, then what that means is is that means that Jesus begins to kind of just bleed over into our everyday, mundane, trivial aspects of our daily life as well. Where Jesus is with us. He's with us at our jobs. He's with us when we go to school. He's with us in our homes. He's with us there at the dinner table before we before we even eat. He's there in our recreation. He's there in everything. And don't misunderstand me for one second. Jesus does need to be included in all of those choices and in all of those activities and in all of our words. But you know what? That familiarity with Jesus... It can breed an informalness. It can breed kind of a nonchalantness. It can breed almost an unimpressed attitude where we take for granted the fact that right now, 
We are in the presence of the Christ, the anointed one of God, Emmanuel, God with us, is with us. Do we get that? Do we get the significance of that right now? When the brother gets up and makes the announcement at the beginning of services and says, let's clear our minds of all of our worldly thoughts as we enter into worship. That's not just some trite little pre-worship cliche that we train all the announcement makers to say just to be saying it. No, it's the truth. It's an important reminder that when we come here to worship the Lord, He needs to be front and center. He is the one thing that we need to be focusing on. And so my admonition to you today in light of the Mount of Transfiguration is to give yourself completely to Him while we are in this moment. Give yourself a chance as we worship before His throne to be impressed with Jesus. To catch just a glimpse of His glory as we sing these songs, as we humble ourselves in prayer, as we partake of these emblems of the Lord's Supper. Stand in awe of the transfigured Christ today. He is here before you. You will but see Him with your spiritual vision. He is the King. He is your King. He wants you to be impressed with His glorious nature so that you will serve Him, you will devote yourself to Him, and that you as well will be transformed by Him. Think about that. The transfigured Christ wants to transfigure you to be brought into His image. And that will happen whenever you come to the mountain and you see, secondly, the supremacy and the superiority of Jesus. Now, if you want to get a really good and in-depth lesson on the superiority of Jesus, go over and read the book of Hebrews. That is very much what the book of Hebrews is all about. Those better things, the, the, the primacy and the greatness of Jesus and His covenant. But the good news is, you don't have to go all the way to Hebrews to get that lesson. You can get that lesson right here on this mountain. Because right here is a definitive moment in time where God announces with His actual audible voice that Jesus is greater and He is better than anyone or anything that has ever come before or who will ever come after. Look at verse 4 where it says there that that while all of this is going on with Jesus being transfigured and these things to do with His appearance, notice verse 4 says that Moses and Elijah, they show up. And that is amazing because these two guys have been dead for centuries. In fact, in the case of Moses, he's been dead for, for over a millennium now. Now, how in the world Peter and the other apostles, how they recognize them, I don't have a clue. Were they wearing name tags? Hi, I'm Elijah. Hi, I'm Moses. Did they go around and shake hands? And Good to see you. Glad to meet you. I don't know how all that happened. Moses is there though. And Elijah is there. Moses obviously represents the law of God. The law that God had delivered to His first covenant people, Israel. And Elijah there, he represents the prophets. All of those good messengers of the Lord who came and brought God's continued messages to the world. And what we have here is we have essentially everything about the Old Testament is standing there talking with Jesus. The law, the prophets. And of course that immediately causes us to think of Matthew 5 verse 17 in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, I've not come to abolish or destroy the law and the prophets. I have come to fulfill them. So what we have here is we have the greatest deliverer of the law, Moses. In fact, 
In many places, the law is named after Him. The law of Moses. And on the other hand, you have the pinnacle of prophetic greatness. And that's not meant to be a slight against Isaiah or Jeremiah or whoever your favorite prophet may be. No, in the Jewish mind, Elijah was the poster boy for the prophets. And so you have here the physical embodiments of the Old Testament system of religion. And they are, they are deferring to Jesus. They demonstrate deference to Jesus. If Jesus had not been present on that mountain that day, then these guys would have been worthy of all the praise and all the honor that could have been heaped upon them. In fact, when you look at verse 5 there, I think that's what Peter's trying to do. I think he's trying to bestow a a special honor upon Elijah and Moses and Jesus there as he offers to build these, these tents or these tabernacles, depending on your translation. But since Jesus is there, these other two guys, they're second fiddles or third fiddles. Because Jesus... He is the fulfillment of everything that these guys were about. He was the fulfillment of everything that they had said, everything that they spoke for, everything that they labored for, everything that they had devoted their lives to. And because of that, He is superior. He is greater. He is more worthy of any honor that could be bestowed upon Him. In fact, I do think in verse 5 that Peter's very sincere yet misguided suggestion here about building the tabernacles. These, I, I take it to be almost kind of memorials or shrines for these three. I think it actually helps to just kind of bring this all into greater clarity. Because after verse 6 points out that Peter, Peter really didn't even know what he was saying. And I have an affinity for Peter. I, I feel like I'm kind of cut in his same mold. Where here in this moment, the terror and the awe and the shock of the moment just caused him to just start talking. Words, they're coming out of my mouth. I can't stop. I have to say something about this. There was folly in those words. And God uses that opportunity to voice from heaven and speak from the cloud above them that is overshadowing them. And can I just say right here, just kind of as a side point, this idea of God speaking from heaven and hearing the audible voice of God I think this is way different than the way it's depicted in television and in the movies. I don't think God's voice sounds like Morgan Freeman. I like Morgan Freeman's voice. Those dulcet tones and how he just says things so smoothly. That's not the way God's voice is. If you read Matthew's account, when they hear the voice of God, Peter, James, and John, they are terrified and they fall on their face. I think that says something about not just how amazing God's voice is, But I think it says something about how seriously God needs to be taken by us. And in this moment in in Mark chapter 9, God speaks in verse 7 and the words that He says are this, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Elijah was a great man. Moses was a great man. But it's not about Elijah. And it's not about Moses. We're not building tabernacles for them. We're not seeking after them. You seek after Jesus, God says. Hear ye Him. He has the preeminence. And sadly, I believe that people today are still trying to build tabernacles in much the same way that Peter wanted to build tabernacles for Elijah and Moses here. You think about it. For example, there are people who are trying to build tabernacles to their feelings. People say, I, you know, I just feel in my heart. Fill in the blank. 
You know, y'all down there in the Church of Christ, y'all are so big about baptism for the remission of sins. Well, you know what? I've never been baptized, but I am saved. And I feel it in my heart. And I wouldn't trade that feeling for a stack of Bibles. Hey, pal, your feelings are not the standard. God says, hear ye Him. Jesus is superior. Or somebody else maybe would build a tabernacle to their pastor. Maybe some famous megachurch pastor. You know what? My megachurch pastor. Oh, he knows he's he's been all over the world. He's preached to millions of people. He's done so many things. He's wrote best-selling books and all kinds of great things. He once said, stop. Just stop right there. Stop right there. It doesn't matter what your megachurch pastor says. Your pastor is not the standard. Hear ye him. Jesus is superior. Somebody else would maybe build a tabernacle to a family member or to a loved one that they revere and think so highly of. My granddaddy. I tell you, my granddaddy was such a good man. Did so many good things. Built this church over here down the road. All kinds of good things. My granddaddy used to tell me, stop, stop right there. Your granddaddy, good man as he may have been, is not the standard. Hear ye him. Jesus is superior. And what the Mount of Transfiguration does is it presents to us, first of all, our glorious King, but it also presents to us the supreme authority of the King that we must hear Him and we must obey Him. He is Jesus the Christ. And I think that all of that is punctuated thirdly by the fact that this mountain, it helps us to see with greater clarity The mission of Jesus. Now, when you read verse 4 in our text, where it says that Moses and Elijah are talking with Jesus, if you're like me, your curiosity just kind of goes off the charts. What are they talking about? I'd like to have been a fly on the wall in that conversation. What are these guys conversing about? Well, Luke's account helps us out a little bit. You can flip out a mark for a second. Look in Luke 9. In Luke chapter 9 and in verse 31, Luke tells us that Moses and Elijah, they were speaking with Jesus about His departure, His exodus. Some translations say His death, which He was to accomplish in Jerusalem. I want us to really focus on that word accomplish. We don't think of death as an accomplishment, do we? Of anybody that like puts that on their resume, here's my list of accomplishments, I've died. That's, that's not how we look at death. We think about death as, as, as victimhood. We think of it as defeat. We think of it as something that we don't want and that we, 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 I don't want that to happen to me. And that is especially true if you're talking about Jesus here. Because I mean, after all, He is the King and He is bringing in this kingdom And if you're living in the first century, then probably what you're thinking is you're thinking, well, that means he's going to bring this kingdom and he's going to put Rome under his thumb. We're going to get rid of the oppressive regime of the Roman government and we're going to be able to kind of set things back in order the way that it was back during the heyday of Jerusalem, back during the days of David. That's what we're looking for with this kingdom here. That's what the king is coming to accomplish. And so for us to talk about the king dying, well, that is the exact antithesis of an accomplishment. That's the exact opposite of what we are looking for out of the king. The truth is, in this case, that is precisely what the king was coming to do. To the letter, according to prophecy. 
in keeping with all that the law and the prophets had said, this is exactly why Jesus came altogether to die. That His purpose, His very mission for coming to planet earth was to give His life as a ransom for many. And here on the Mount of Transfiguration, I believe Jesus feels intensely the looming nature of the cross there on Calvary. And when that does happen, when Jesus does go to the cross, don't let your eyes deceive you. Because as He is being humiliated in front of the throngs of the bloodthirsty crowd, and as He is being beaten and subjected to torture, and as He is dying there openly in a shameful way in front of all the world, do not buy what you are seeing. Because it's not defeat. It's actually victory. It is the King. The King coming in power. Because it is in that moment in His death, He is crushing death under His heel. It is in that moment that He is overcoming sin, which has victimized every human being who has ever walked the face of this earth, and He is killing it forever. And when ultimately the stone is rolled away, and when He walks out of that tomb, He will be the triumphant Son of God, claimed and proven to be the Son of God with power, the Son of God who has accomplished everything that His Father had sent Him to earth to do. And what that means is, is that means that you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and all of you and me, we can share in that same victory where we don't have to worry about death. And we don't have to worry about the dominion of sin in our life anymore because we have the choice to walk with Jesus the Christ. And we can do that in anticipation of eternal life and eternal glory with Him. Jesus accomplished that for us so that one day we can be partakers of His divine nature. In fact, I think in some ways this helps us to explain verse number 9. We should go back to Mark chapter 9. Look in verse 9 there. When it says that they were coming down the mountain, and Jesus then charged Peter, James, and John not to tell anyone what they had seen, Don't tell anybody about this right now. You do that after I've risen from the dead. We might scratch our heads a little bit about that. What was the deal there? Well, in other words, I didn't do all of this and I didn't show you all of this just so you'd have some amazing spectacle to you know, occupy a few minutes of your time. I didn't show you this to give you a reason to go around boasting to others and say, you guys are not going to believe what we saw. We're the only three guys who saw it, but I tell you what, it was amazing. No. Jesus did not give them this experience so that they would have some kind of a neat story to tell at parties. No, Jesus says, I brought you to this mountain because I want you to see Jesus in the light of victory. That when my work is accomplished, when the crucifixion and the burial and the resurrection have all taken place, then all of this, it's going to make sense. It's all, the pieces are just all going to fit. Because then, After I am raised, then will be the right time to go and tell the world of Jesus' glory. Then will be the right time to go and tell the world of Jesus' supremacy. How He fulfilled His mission in order to bring salvation to all mankind. And we know for certain that this mountaintop encounter, it left an indelible imprint on at least one of those three men. I think it did on all three of them. But we know specifically that it left a special imprint on the mind and the life of the Apostle Peter. 
Would you find 2 Peter chapter 1, one final passage this morning? Because some 30, 35 years after these events, Peter would write his second epistle. And in that epistle, he would actually write about what he saw. Think about all the things that Peter saw throughout his time with Jesus. So many things that he could have specifically referenced in detail and talked about. But Peter chose this event, the things that happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. In 2 Peter chapter 1, as Peter is making the argument that the words that he is speaking and the words that he is writing, that these are the very words of God, Peter appeals to his own eyewitness testimony as being the evidence of that when he says in 2 Peter 1 and in verse 16, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Verse 18, We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. It is of interest to me, Just how much Peter changed. You study the life of Peter. And just how much he changed. From that day when he was on the mountain, he was just kind of loose lips and just flying off the handle, just saying all kinds of silly stuff. To now 30, 35 years later, and he writes these words. You know, Mark said that when Peter spoke on the mountain, he did not know what to say. And I don't think truer words could have ever been recorded. Just a very human moment for him. But now here he is decades later. He's older, he's wiser, he's more mature. And he says, I can tell you all about exactly what I saw on that mountain. It was unlike anything else that's ever been seen on this earth before. I can tell you about the majesty and the glory that appeared there before my physical eyes. In fact, I can tell you word for word the voice as it spoke from above. And what He said when God the Father spoke from the cloud. And I heard in His words the approval that God gave of His Son. And I heard the authority that He was granting to His Son when He said, Hear ye Him. And just as Peter's life was forever changed by the things that he heard and saw on that mountain, I believe our lives should be forever changed as well by encountering Jesus on this holy mountain as well. Because the truth is, when you read this account, and then when you read Peter's corroboration of the events of that account, the only reasonable reaction, the only rational thing that you can do in response, is to hear and obey Him. And that is why right now, we want to give you the opportunity to do just that. This morning, you have the opportunity to repent of whatever sins you have committed against the King and against His kingdom, and to have those sins washed away in the waters of baptism by being buried with Christ in immersion. That is what the King says that you need to do in order to be saved. And you know what you need to do? You need to hear Him and you need to obey Him. If you are a citizen in the kingdom, but you have not been faithful to the King, then brother or sister, you need to recalibrate. You need to go back to the beginning 
And you need to remember what it means to give the king the supreme and superior position in your life. Let us pray with you. Let us encourage you. Let us help you to serve the Lord in a better way from this day forward. You know, if we're ever going to make it to the top of that final mountain, and that would be Mount Zion, the dwelling place and the abode of God, Brother Cain's going to talk about that this evening, then that will only happen because we have allowed Jesus to change us. Because we have allowed Jesus to transfigure us so that we are better suited and we are able to join Him in heaven for all of eternity. We can help you to take a critical step in that direction. And this invitation is open to you right now. Make your way to the front while we stand and while we sing.